0: Today's talk is meant to connect our practice on the cushion with our practice of daily life. I'm going to start with daily life and then make the connection with our ordinary practice. our practice of meditation. That's what I meant. The title of today's talk, appropriately then, is Our Money or Our Life. You see, in daily life, that's what the talk starts talking about, in daily life, when you're told your money or your life, you know there's a bandit saying that, who is ready to rob you and gives you an alternative. Do you want to keep your money or keep your life? And of course, most of us would hand our money out without hesitation. In the course of our regular life, we often confront similar dilemmas. Not in the process of being mugged, but in having to choose between our income that is our money or the quality of our life and when confronted with that dilemma lo and behold more often than not what we choose is to retain our money and surrender our life it's incredible. What makes us do that? I'm not saying it's universal, but it's quite common. Today I'll try to answer that question in the light of the split we have created between mother, money and wisdom. And I will examine what it'd be like with the help of the practice meditation practice to overcome this dilemma let me make this very clear patent patently clear we inhabit a world that is split into two presumably incompatible spheres The sphere of money money on the one hand and the sphere of morality and wisdom on the other. The rules of the world of money have nothing to do with wisdom and morality. In the money world, all that matters is what's called the bottom line. As we add our assets and we add our debts, is a positive, and how large a positive balance is? It? That's called the bottom line. And so, wisdom and morality are confined to a, a money that's a world that's not ruled by money. This separation, of course, has been around for quite a long time. The Buddha expressed in his concern about this when talking about right livelihood. And he very clearly and unquestionably prescribed that dealing in arms, slaves, prostitution, or drugs is against the principles of morality and should be abandoned. Jesus expressed similar concern when he drove the money changers out of the temple. But neither Jesus nor the Buddha could have imagined the disconnect between the two worlds that exists in our time. Let me illustrate. This is not a It is something quite experiential. Let me illustrate it with a couple of stories. One is a story from the 1890s in New York City. At that time, more so than today, of course, it can happen but not with the intensity that it happened then, there were several New York City hostesses who compete, competed with each other to be the rage of the elite. One significant item in their scorecard when they invited guests was the presents they gave to their guests. Often jewelry inside the folded napkins as they set the table. One particular hostess, hostess determined to outdo her rivals, placed instead of jewelry crisp hundred dollar bills. I mean a huge sum of the time. Her gimmick backfired. Nobody of any consequence ever accepted her invitations again. Why? She had transgressed the forbidden boundary between the world of money and that of morality. And here's a follow-up of this story. A few months ago, with Raquel, we had some guests, uh, four guests in fact, for lunch. We were sitting in the screen porch of our home, and uh, I told them this story. And then I went to make some tea. And when I came back, as you can probably imagine, I found a twenty dollar bill in my neck. <laughs> now, now, what's interesting here, you see, He said, it wasn't easy for me to take those $20. (laughs) Because, I mean, they were breaking a rule, sure, but I would be breaking a rule accepting it. I did accept it, of course. I had the intellectual understanding to accept it. But I had this difficulty inside me. Uh, The separation is so deeply ingrained that reason doesn't Do away with it. The second story concerns a money workshop I attended in uh, London led by a California philosopher called Jacob Needleman. (coughs) It took several days and one morning we were asked to contribute some money to a kitty And then, Needleman asked for volunteers to hand out the money to strangers. I was one of the volunteers, and uh, each one of us got 20 pounds, actually. It wasn't dollars, pounds. And uh, and then, after the lunch break, we'd come back and share the stories. I, I, I don't remember... The other stories, they're all vivid, but I remember mine, of course. So I stood there in this busy corner of London looking for some target for my investigation and I settled on a young couple. They were waiting for the light to turn to cross the street and I stopped them and I explained them that I wanted to Test this out. What was it like to give money to strangers? Oh, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention. We excluded in the strangers that we'd give money to, beggars, prostitutes, organized charities, and even street vendors, because they're they used to deal with money. I mean it had to be something that that was not permissible, that was so Breaking the rules. So, the young guy listened with interest. Yeah, he understood. I was doing a test. The girl with him was absolutely furious. (laughs) She was so frightened that I would accept the money. I mean, she did not, couldn't conceive this breaking of the rules. In the end, he took it. They crossed the street and I saw them arguing with each other. As far as I could see them. The only other story I remember was of a friend of mine in that that group. And what he reported is that he could not bring himself to give other 20 pounds. <laughs> now, you see, if we had been handing out flowers, no problem. So, the, the the partition is real, it's not a formality, it's in our minds. In order to Better illustrate this partition, this charade of a partition between the money and the morality spheres. I've constructed the, the mock-up of that of the wall. That's supposed to be the wall. Some of you may stand up if you don't see it. But there's a, an aluminum foil there. Unfold it, uh, and um, I have. So, the, the sheet delimits the two areas. On this side of the sheet, say, it's a moral area where family, friends, and, and the family of us, too, the Sangha, belong. On the other side, let's say the side towards the wall here, but of course it's a whole world. This is a whole world. Everybody else. Everybody else is strangers in the world. On that side, the only rules that apply are the rules of the market, the dictates of the bottom line, the logic of money. In crossing to the other side, we are prompted expected to become our greedy selves. To not go around handing out 20-pound bills to strangers. In This partition is not a theoretical, it's one that we experience. So I've constructed a number of posters that I'm going to put on the wall just to illustrate the ways in which our weight uh, a world is cut in two halves. Um, the first poster I have already shared with you. This is this ad from the Chemical Bank that I shared with you yesterday. i don 't know whether you can see from back there. Um, On the, uh, on the, beyond the wall everything is under control on this side of the wall is our ordinary lives the full catastrophe of our ordinary lives this, for those of you who weren't here yesterday this audio tap, tape well it's an audio tape I suppose reflects our messy life you know our real real life. There are all kinds of things that are not fitting into place sometimes. Sometimes very many, sometimes few. It doesn't matter. And the bank, the money world, on the other hand, offers us a need laundered CD yes, in contrast to that. Of course, as I mentioned yesterday, and it's obvious to all of us in these times, this thing can be get really messy, the banking side. <laughs> and when it gets really messy, it's hopeless. Well, here, the mess we can deal with. So, let me post the posters. I'll have to move about for that. I don't know if you in the back can see them, but I hope you can. Another illustration. Family and friends on this side, as I said, strangers on the other side. On the other side, we transact business. On this side, we cultivate relationships. And an illustration... It's a sign I saw in a shop decades ago, but I still remember it. I wrote it down. A a shop in a little village in Ecuador. The village is called Macas, And uh, it was in Spanish, of course. I'll say it in English and then repeat the Spanish version, the original. In English, it would say, Dear customer, do not confuse friendship with business. <laughs> you see, it's, everybody was friendly in that town. <laughs> this guy, I'm, I understand it. He was fed up with people. You know, I'm a friend. Come on, I'll pay you tomorrow kind of thing. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's understandable, but, <laughs> but it fits. In Spanish, it's señor cliente. No confunda la amistad con los negocios. I'll leave those signs there in case you want to examine them. Money side, legality, moral side, morality. This is a quote. Again, from decades ago, that I picked from a newspaper in England during the Mexican debt crisis. Remember, there were there was gatherings. To, same thing that's happening now with Greece was happening with Mexico. And and these um, um, people from corporations, representatives of corporations, were gathering with them representatives of a Mexican government, see if they could strike a deal. And the corporate guy says, and I quote exactly his words, says, we are simply protecting the interests of our shareholders. But the Mexican debt negotiator wants to lecture us on Morality how dare him (laughs) (laughs) money side quantity primarily moral side quality primarily It's a little cartoon from the New Yorker, all these prosperous-looking people gathered for dinner, I suppose, or lunch, whatever, and one of them tells the other, money is life's report card. (laughs) I mean, it, it fits with our culture. That's why the New Yorker made a cartoon. Money side presumption, presumption of presumption of scarcity moral side presumption of availability without scarcity you have inflation very different rules money side, money side competition Moral side, cooperation. In the competition, all against each other. In the cooperation, all together. And and then there is that, uh, I call it fable of Adam Smith, who said, uh, under the title of the invisible hand, he said, there's an invisible hand, such that the pursuit of self-interest leads to satisfaction of social interest. In the money side, sexual commerce including marriages of convenience and prostitution. On the moral side, side love relationships. I got this quote from the movie Pretty Woman in which uh, Richard Gere, a businessman, says to... Julia Roberts, who is a prostitute. I don't get emotionally involved in business. And Julia Roberts says, "I know. It's like turning tricks. When my, I'm with a, with a guy, I just do it." And um, and here, from a book of quotes that I've used before. This woman called Vanessa, she lives in South Africa. She says, for me, money is very important. Money is the only thing I dream of. As I always say, if I must have a boyfriend, he must have money. I always say to men, no, I don't want you because you don't have any money. And they say to me, you only want to love me for my money no, she says, for me there is no love. <laughs> I need money. If I can get any, if he can't give me any, I want money. I love money. I need money. For me, money is everything. bit extreme, of course, but uh, then not everybody speaks their mind as uh, Vanessa. <laughs> And then, of course, this partition is uh, polarized uh, between the sexes. You know, nothing. There's a masculine side of each one of us and the feminine side of each one of us. We could call it, some writer has called it Mars and Venus. Mars, the masculine side, and Venus, the feminine side. And there's that Old nursery rhyme, English, I think. Must be, yes. Which says, the king is in the country house counting out his money. The queen is in the garden eating bread and honey. (laughs) So it's it's an old partition. And then in in more modern times, there's a visa ad. A man and a woman, and they say, she says, well, you know, with visa they get all this benefit, supposedly, anyway. And she says, Mmm, just the two of us alone all weekend. How romantic. And he says, If we use our visa card, we'll earn 20% in rewards. What a deal. (laughs) But again, you know, men and women have both sides, of course. A couple more. I'm not exhausting the list. Just see whether it it, it gets you an idea that this is for real, you know. On the money side, the pursuit for profit, of profit to avoid the erosion and the extinction of our egos. You seek profit so that the ego comes up. On the moral side, the pursuit of ecological sustainability to avoid the erosion of habitats and the extin- extinction of our species, of all species including our own and one last one on the money side plutocracy that is governed by the rich governed by the wealthy and for the wealthy if you wish on this side democracy government by the people and for the people To sum it up then, when we dwell on the monetary side of the divide, we end up imprisoned by it. But what takes us to play on the money side is not money itself. It's not that money makes us do that. Of course not. It's our own wanting mind. A mind that is willing to shed, shed morality and wisdom for the sake of filling up its pockets, yes, but primarily puffing up its ego, its greedy ego. So, of course, um, you'd understand that there are forces pushing, trying to push this wall this in both directions. From the money side, the pressure has been relentless in recent times. As the power of morality has dwindled in relationship to the power of the bottom line, we have seen the money world, the corporate world, take over our political system and even the run of our lives. The moral side has also, of course, thankfully, responded in kind, trying to regain ground both in the political and economic arena. And certainly, I for one cannot but applaud those efforts to restore the balance in the distribution of power. Currently, concentrated in the hands of the very few. And yet, and yet, the point that I want to make clear is that a lasting solution does not depend on the location of the wall, but in its being tumbled down, its demise. Let's talk about the possibility of the wall coming down. Certainly, if it did, then we could restore the rule of morality for all our interactions, not just within the friends, family and sangha, but um, with all the world, and even with all parts of ourselves, you see. As I, as I mentioned the story of how I found this $20 in my napkin and, and there's a part of myself that had difficulty with that. Of course, talking about tumbling down the wall is easier said than done, absolutely. But said... It must. Otherwise, unless we say it, unless we talk about the world, the, the wall coming down, we remain trapped in the anticipation that there is no way out, that the world is of such a nature that will remain forever fractured into two incompatible spheres. And I say, rubbish. So, how do we keep at least reminding ourselves that there is a way out? One well, obvious way to do that is to come to appreciate the commons, the space of conviviality, of being together. That's already available surely on this side of the wall. And sometimes even with people who were strangers to us. If we start cultivating conviviality, we, we discover that there's no need to barricade ourselves behind anything, behind any wall. For me, the Recent, current, really, Occupy Wall Street movement is a case in point. True, I I've I've, haven't never i have been there, but Maya has, Raquel has, I've talked to other people who have, and of course I've been following on the TV through... Amy Goodman's excellent reporting in a program called Democracy Now! and other programs as well. I've been following what's happening. And what I gather from what I've heard and seen is that it's not so much an occupation of a pre-existing space What's happening is an opening of a new space. Opening of a new space. Take, for instance, this plaza near Wall Street Park, where the demonstrators are gathered. There's space for conversation there. One person talks aloud, and others repeat what they say, and that takes the place of loudspeakers. There's a sharing of food, breaking bread, if you wish. There's doing art work, doing body work, doing mind work, really. All kinds of activities on in common. What matters is not so much the actual details of what goes on but that the space is opening. It's an open space. It's an open space in the street and it hopefully will be matched by an open space inside ourselves. Because that's what pra- the practice of meditation is about, to create an open space inside ourselves, a receptive space inside ourselves. We, in the course of practice, we set out to discover what is it like to dwell unhindered, in the world, inner and outer. Of course, sometimes we do, very often in our lives and in our real interaction with others, bump into hindrances. But then, when we recognize the hidden hindrances, ah, this is the hindrances I bump into, then we can do something about it. We can go beyond them. When I was just starting meditation, I remember doing a week-long retreat that was at Gaia House in England. And it was one of, maybe my first week-long retreat. And I found myself during the whole week, not all the time, but much of the time, obsessing about my bank account in the U.S. <laughs> I mean, afraid that... I had just a few thousand dollars, you know. It's not that I was rich. But afraid that somebody would, would do something with that money, take it away. I mean, that taught me a lot, you know. What, how I had created this fiction around my bank account. A fiction like that thing there. Very much the first poster with a CD instead of a messy audio tape. Becoming aware of this obsession was an enormous gift. I could really, basically, diffuse and deal with it. It took me time, but I did. Transcend it. Move on. So by practicing meditation, we come to realize firsthand that the limits of our world, the shape of our world, is in the end defined by our own mind by our own both individual and collective minds therefore if the rules of money ends up, end up constraining us is simply because we buy into them of course i mean we may have a shortage of money but but i'm i'm talking about this psychological extension of the difficulties we may have in paying our bills. But if we don't buy into them with our hearts, then we remain free. And we pay our bills the best we can. The real problem with our money or our life is in the hour. If we cling, it in clinging. If we cling, then we are trapped. Not by bandits, but by ourselves. But if we channel both life and money, guided by wisdom instead of greed, then we are free from the menace of the most dangerous bandit of all our own ego self. So, let me make this point very clear again. The problem is not money itself, not at all. It's how we relate to it. Without the collusion of our egos, the the wall, this wall, would not be able to stand there impact of economic crises that visit us periodically, crises that call into question the sanity of excluding wisdom and morality from the public sphere. Then, if and when we come to realize the insanity of the wall, as the inability of the wall to deliver happiness becomes clear for all to see, then we stop propping up the wall, And then it will inevitably fall. The actual schedule for that I leave to economists, of course. But uh, and to the ups and downs of the fortunes of the world which are very much out of control at this point uh, in much of the world. But at least it's important that we do not collude into the construction of that separation. So, let's sit in silence for a few minutes.